Hello from Delinea, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the 401 Access Denied podcast, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or a review on your platform of choice, or by emailing us at podcast at delinea.com. From all of us at Delinea, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the 401 Access Denied podcast. I am the host of the episode, Joe Carson, Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Delinea. And it's a pleasure to be here with you, always looking to bring the latest trends, news, information to really provide you the information you need to make the right decisions in your cybersecurity strategy. And this topic is very important. Sometimes it's not always the funnest topic, but it's one of the most important topics. And it actually start, it is starting to get a bit more fun. I do think we're bringing the fun back into this uh, specific area. Um, so I have an awesome guest to really bring in a lot of the details and thought leadership and ideas uh, related to this. So Steve, welcome to the episode. Uh, if you want to give us an introduction of who you are, what you do, and, and some fun things about yourself. Thanks, Joe. Pleasure to be here. I uh, really uh, appreciate being on the show. Uh, yeah, I have to agree that uh, this stuff is definitely getting more and more fun as things evolve. So uh, so with that, yeah, I'm a partner with Cherry Beckert uh, in the Risk Accounting and Advisory Service Group, and I lead the Information Assurance and Cybersecurity team. So we get responsible for um, an array of different service offerings, a lot of what we're going to talk about here today, predicated on third-party risk management, information cybersecurity, privacy risk management, and governance, things along those lines, a lot of the, uh, what we'll call alphabet soup, but the different types of certifications um, and attestations on third-party criteria that's out there. Um, our team also gets involved in doing uh, a tremendous amount of cyber advisory work. So mm -hmm. helping management and key stakeholders, um, you know, identify and execute on their cyber governance and privacy risk management initiatives. Uh, and that's all the way down from policy, procedure, design, risk management, execution to the technical aspects of what we would be helping with as well. So helping them with, um, you know, their system architectures, mm -hmm. helping them with their uh, their vulnerability and risk management programs, attack and penetration testing, uh, configuration assessments, secure architecture mm -hmm. design and deployments for cloud services, things along those lines. We also get involved in doing uh, the combination of people, process, and technology to help in, in a managed capacity. So, you know, virtual CISO helping with their incident mm -hmm. response uh, programs and, and a lot of other uh, security awareness trainings and other things that go along with the, the governance programs that we have. Uh, we like to say that we're, we're the, um, we perform as a center of excellence to support mm -hmm. the rest of the firm. Uh, so we perform services to provide backup and or support for our accounting teams, our uh, assurance teams, financial assurance teams, transaction advisory mm -hmm. teams, our digital transformation teams, so on and so forth. So pretty comprehensive. Um, a little bit about myself. So started out in the, in the financial reporting space. I am a CPA. Mm -hmm. um, early in my career, I identified a passion for cybersecurity and risk and Ultimately, that evolved. I uh, had a deep penetration. I was active pen tester on the network and uh, web application side, and, and that passion still exists today. So fundamentally, that was kind of the foundation <laughs> that drove me to uh, understanding and driving back a lot of the risk that we look mm -hmm. at and how to best um, mitigate and protect against those circumstances. And that's kind of evolved, as we're going to talk about here, between your cybersecurity program in addition to your cybersecurity compliance initiatives. Fantastic. And absolutely. It's for me, I think it's really important to have those combinations. Very few people actually had the the, the knowledge of both, you know, the, uh, you know, CPA side of things and the cybersecurity and bringing those both together is, is, is very, very critical, and important. One of the things is, as we're going to this theme of compliance and regulatory side of things and all of the, the needs and certifications and audits and so forth. But you know, one of the things that as we start off going down that path, 
you know, what is compliance intended? What is the purpose of compliance? What is it for typically? And what is it, what is it not for uh, as well? As we go down this, you know, many organizations are always thinking about, you know, oh, we need to do it. But, you know, what should be the goals? What should be the intentions uh, for doing compliance? So I, I think it's a great point, and it's one that, um, you know, often requires some unpacking. And I think, you know, mm -hmm. as, as cyber attacks are increasing and they evolve, you know, there's a dynamic risk landscape that we have to, we have to navigate, and mm -hmm. that traverses through the organization. That coupled with the security breaches that are out there in the media has definitely gained the attraction of, you know, a lot of business owners, key stakeholders, regulatory groups, things of that nature, which is downstream forcing kind of uh, a little bit more or a lot more, I should say, mm -hmm. transparency in how organizations operate. Um, so what you're finding is that you get like this perfect storm of um, not only the awareness of what's going on, the, the changing nature of technology, the changing nature of the risks and the need for these organizations to demonstrate their fiduciary mm -hmm. compliance and overall expectations and controls to mm -hmm. third parties and their leadership in order to make sure things are safeguarded. Um, so when we talk about cybersecurity, cybersecurity is broader than mm -hmm. cyber compliance, right? It's, it's really something that most organizations are navigating based on their risk tolerance and, and the overall, again, threat landscape. And they're designing the right adequate controls in order to best mitigate risks uh, to what they would what they feel would be residually acceptable. Um, and those can drive down very technical components. They can go all the way down. And obviously, you know, this is comprehensive to co compliance as well. But you know, organizations may be looking at the kill chain and the attack mm -hmm. frameworks that are out there. They may be looking at the MITRE framework and basically trying to design the best systems to identify. Um, uh, protect, detect, respond, and recover mm -hmm. through element, the different elements of, of that progression. Um, so you're going to see, you know, the, the use of uh, systems that are more mature with organizations that are trying to really evolve an adaptive uh, security program. And you're going to see organizations that are, you know, stepping in the right direction, but a little bit slower mm -hmm. on the tail in order to get there. So, you know, typically cybersecurity is something that's more comprehensive across the board. Cyber compliance, while it is part of cybersecurity and follows many of the best practices you'd expect, you know, it's typically driven on uh, regulatory mm -hmm. and contractual obligations, right? So mm -hmm. organizations are inherently, depending on where they operate, when industries there operate, you know, they have to adhere to um, contractual obligations, especially mm -hmm. if they're service providers providing these types of services to third parties, cloud providers, things like that. Um, and then they also obviously have to deal with the regulatory implications depending on where they operate. So if they're, mm -hmm. if they're utilizing and or processing, store process or transmitting certain types of data, then these different regulatory requirements are going to fall upon them, such mm -hmm. as, you know, obviously uh, PCI, if they're dealing yep. with uh, cardholder data or, you know, they're dealing with um, health information, a TIPA, mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And we'll talk to some of those in a little bit. But I think that's an important differentiator. In, in, in many cases, you don't want to devise your overall cybersecurity program just based on compliance. Compliance is a factor it's very important to adhere to, but it's probably the minimum baseline that you would want to adhere to in order to meet regulatory and legal obligations. But if you're truly trying to defend against the modern day evolving attacks, you know, you're going to take a more proactive uh, risk management approach entity wide and try to look at things on a broader scale. And keep in mind too, that some of these frameworks are very prescriptive and costly. Mm -hmm. Um, time, energy, effort, human capital, finance, everything, right? So when it comes down to certain elements of these particular requirements, organizations look to segment and or isolate the different types of data sets in order to control their compliance costs. So once again, 
there's strategies here that are driven based on the need mm -hmm. of the organization. Fantastic. That's really interesting. It's, it's, it's really kind of what it, for me, it's, it's probably compliance should be part of your overall cybersecurity strategy rather than cybersecurity shouldn't be just there to you know, be part of the compliance portion. It should be basically as part of that broader, uh, you know, kind of strategy for the organization. So when you go down this, if I'm an organization, um, how, how should I prioritize, what, you know, or what goals should I try to set myself? Um, you know, how would I go around if if I did have some type of compliance that I need to do, let's say it was a PCI compliance or a SOC compliance, what would be the prioritization? How should I approach it? So I think, you know, when you take a step back and you look at the goals for compliance, you're looking at a few things, right? You're really looking at one, what are the legal and regulatory requirements that you need to hear, adhere to? So mm -hmm. identifying just like cybersecurity initiatives where you're identifying your assets, you're understanding the type of data you have, the systems you have, how you interact with third parties, so on and so forth. And you need to know the uh, the legal requirements as far as how you're dealing with su the, the supply chain system and all how you're dealing with third parties, um, contractual obligations that you have on vendors and customers. And of course, the type of data that you have is going to really prescribe the nature and way in which you have to handle that data in certain elements of the business. Um, then you're going to design, basically, you're going to look at the data protection mechanisms that you're going to find in order to best safeguard that. Um, you're going to establish your risk management program. Um, you're really looking to make sure that you're, you're taking into account all your inherent risk factors, but you're looking into other elements in your risk assessment process to, divide, to define the right controls, make sure that they're complete based on the criteria or the regulatory requirements. Um, and then you're designing the controls and the execution of the controls in order to best mitigate to get to a residual risk level that you can tolerate, right? And that, that's acceptable. And this is an ongoing process, right? So mm -hmm. that part of the program, very similar to cybersecurity, you know, you're going to drive your risk assessment process. That's going to drive how you're going to act and how much you're going to spend in the way of resources. Um, you're really looking and doing this to gain consumer trust, you know, protect your reputation, protect mm -hmm. your brand. But because it's so inclusive and it's in many cases, depending on the organization and who they provide services to, it can be very, very uh, time consuming and, you know, mm -hmm. establishing the right mechanisms for uh, the efficiency patterns that you may have both internally as well as externally and how you're dealing with your auditors becomes very mm -hmm. important. It can save an organization a lot of time, energy and effort, really focus their efforts. So making sure you have a good, clear path, making sure you develop and design systems that you can operationalize very effectively and efficiently mm -hmm. across these requirements. And these are dynamically changing. Mm -hmm. If your organization is obviously a global organization, making sure that you design the program scalable, that you can deal with any data sovereignty issues or any type of um, you know, segmentation that's needed in order to protect data in different geographical areas. I think that's really important. Uh, so in other words, you know, this is a moving target. It's not set and forget. You have to have the strategy, but you got to bring back everything you need in order to properly uh, execute on that program. Mm -hmm. so, think, so it sounds, sounds more like a, it's a cyber quality assurance, you know, that your, your organization is showing that you've set a certain level of standard. Um, yeah. I think to your point, I mean, it, it's really important from not only a legal obligation perspective, but mm -hmm. it can potentially drive competitive advantage. Um, you know, you most organizations are going to have ethical mm -hmm. and fiduciary requirements to safeguard and protect that data. So obviously it's going to keep you in line with what you need to do to, to continue to have the reputation you want to have in the, in the services that you deliver. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And what, what, I mean, there's so many out there. Uh, like, there's lots of different compliances. Uh, what, are, what are some of the most common that organizations would tend to you know, have to, to meet? Um, and what, maybe what are some of the, the you know, slight differences between them? 
Um, I think it's, you know, when you see that, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of spaghetti soup out there. There's a lot of acronyms, a lot of buzzwords. Uh, but what, what's some of the most common that you, you tend to, you know, cross? I, I got I got to think there's literally hundreds of these globally, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time in, in certain ones. But mm-hmm. um, obviously, you know, if, if you're dealing with multiple industries and you're dealing with, um, you know, service delivery across mm-hmm. uh, geographic borders, there's going to be more and more of that that are aligned yep. to you. But some of the common ones where we spend a lot of time, uh, obviously, we do a lot of SOC reporting. Mm-hmm. So it's system organization control reporting. You know, those are typically geared and, and we'll talk to a little bit. Of, uh, we'll talk to more of those later on. I know during our podcast here, but, mm-hmm. you know, those are typically driven on for a SOC one controls over financial reporting and for a SOC two operations and compliance related to, mm-hmm. you know, certain criteria such as security, availability, processing, integrity, confidentiality and privacy. Um, and mm-hmm. it really gives back for a SOC two on the organization's service level commitment. So once again, it's really what services are you providing the coverage for and what are your commitments mm-hmm. to your third parties or your, or your customers around what you're going to do to safeguard that data, the data, the systems mm-hmm. and the assets and how you're actually communicating that and providing that level of transparency. Um, another one that you typically see that's that's global in nature, it's agnostic, is ISO 27001. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a program designed around your uh, ISMS, your information security management uh, program, and it's really driven on making sure you have the right governance policies, procedures, risk assessment procedures, so on and so forth. Um, like I said, internationally accepted. We see a lot of organizations that are adopting that as a, as a foundation and framework for what they need in order to tie back to their cyber governance programs. Um, you see others that are predicated on on data security, for, for example, GDPR mm-hmm. on uh, EU citizens and, and making sure that any data that you're handling on behalf of EU citizens, regardless of where you are, is mm-hmm. is protected and safeguarded and you have the right uh, elements of that, you know, for purposes of the data subject rights and whether or not they can actually be uh, the right to be forgotten and, and making sure that mm-hmm. that's safeguarded and, and protected and the consumers have an ability to keep that updated. And, and honestly, when you start to see these global uh, requirements uh, kind of come up, what happens is mm-hmm. you start to see kind of a, a, um, a relay effect that cascades down to, for example, at the state levels here in the U.S. where California mm-hmm. has adopted, you know, the California Consumer Consumer Privacy right. Act, CCPA, which follows a lot of the very similar characteristics to GDPR. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're dealing with health information, um, PHI, um, you know, we have here in the states HIPAA, uh, mm-hmm. which is a regulatory requirement around the safeguarding of, of uh, information related to an individual's health information, the confidentiality, the integrity mm-hmm. of that, and there's certain rights and implications to that. That includes, obviously, the legal requirements as well as best practice controls for the administrative, technical, physical safeguards uh, for that information. If you're operating in the payment space, even globally, uh, PCI has prescriptive standards on what you need to do in order to safeguard that information. So if you have a card data environment that's store processing or transmitting cardholder data, or even if your environment connects to an environment that does that, there's elements of PCI that are required in order to best safeguard and demonstrate that. There's um, other types of agnostic ones that we have here in the States that are uniformly adapted globally, but there's also Mm -hmm. obviously global uh, considerations that have their own, um, you know, um, standards as well, Mm -hmm. but something like the NIST cybersecurity framework. Yep. Um, which is an agnostic framework that's utilized for many organizations in assessing their maturity. You know, they take a look at their their current maturity. They look at a, an established or a target profile, and they measure up to see where they stand there and what uh, potential um, additional technologies, people, process, and technologies they want to put in in order to achieve their target compliance based on their appetite. 
NIST also has other foundations, right? So we have uh, 853, which is yep. predominantly driving uh, FISMA around government systems and FedRAMP for government cloud systems and, and uh, authority to operate uh, and authority to operate for those cloud systems for government entities. You have NIST 800-171 for government contractors. This one's interesting. This has been around for a bit mm -hmm. uh, around government contractors, both for you know the, uh, the primes and the subs. But what's happened in the, uh, the, the recent years is they've come up with the, the cybersecurity maturity model certification, which is a independent certification depending on, you know, the level of maturity and how much CUI or controlled unclassified information that you have. So depending on how you are um, using data in that supply mm -hmm. chain process, there's different levels. So if you're uh, dealing with federal contract information, it's level one. If you're dealing again with CUI, then that's level two. And then uh, level three is is a more prescriptive, adoptive, um, you know, requirement there or level that you would have as you mature through that process. Level two is really predicated on NIST 800-171. That's been the basis mm -hmm. and the foundation for several years now. Um, there's others. So when you think about Sarbanes-Oxley, that's really yeah. geared on, you know, basic general controls around financial reporting. So making mm -hmm. sure the accuracy and and the completeness uh, in, uh, of transactions is, is where it needs to be mm -hmm. for, for public stakeholders uh, that are investing in companies. So that's that's really important. And what you're starting to see is more attention even in the cyberspace around mm -hmm. SOX. So the SEC just recently put out uh, a proposed, or it was a proposed rule, mm -hmm. it's a final rule now, yep. on making sure that organizations disclose um, a certain level of their cybersecurity governance program, their risk management program, who's accountable for mm -hmm. it, and they're requiring more stringent breach notifications on their annual yep. forms, uh, depending on the nature of that. And then obviously there's other ones for GLBA. Um, yeah, there's, there's just so many of them that the hard part there is, again, understanding when they're applicable, when they're not, and the nuances of applying each one and how to best strategize within an organization so that you're not uh, overburdening your compliance and security teams. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I find is that, you know, especially when you get into those, the disclosure notification side of things, they're, they're very different. And, you know, when you look at things like GDPR, it's about the uh, disclosure of undue delay. I remember being uh, involved in the very early revisions and it was set as 14 days, uh, but it was not based on the type of data. It was just, you know, if you had a breach, you had 14 days, but then they changed it to undue delay because then it was more applicable to what type of breach did, was it, what, what data was impacted. So it was more a risk-based approach. Uh, but when you get into those breach notifications, it's really good into is for some, you know, for two, two to four days, sometimes you don't even know what's happening. Uh, many organizations are still trying to understand. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see, and absolutely, I think organizations really need to get into the planning and preparation and, and simulating many of those to, to be prepared. I think the real interesting part is by prescribing that kind of a mm -hmm. timeline, that aggressive timeline, it's inherently forcing a maturity mm -hmm. on organizations yep. that clearly, you know, many of them are just not there. So. Um, you know, when you think about the need in order to respond for a material breach on any type of data set, depending on your requirements within a prescribed timeline, you have to have the right incident response programs. You have to have everything mm -hmm. orchestrated. I tell organizations all the time, I mean, professional mm -hmm. football teams don't go out and just play, right? They practice, yeah. they rehearse. So if you haven't done that, if you haven't assigned that accountability, if you don't know your positions and you have not rehearsed doing what you need to do, you're going to have a very difficult time. In addition, mm -hmm. you know, the need for the, the EDRs, the XDRs, the SOAR mm -hmm. types of uh, threat and, and al uh, and al analytics and reporting are really important in order for organizations to really stay on top of the emerging threats and make sure mm -hmm. that, you know, they're staying one step ahead. And again, they're able to respond accordingly within those timelines. Absolutely. I will say when I, when I get, you know, pulled into incidents, 
And I would say that, you know, the first 24 hours of the instance is going to be one of the most important 24 hours of a business's, <laughs> business's response in life. Uh, because how you respond in that 24 hours is critical and it can really redefine uh, the outcomes for sure. I agree. I agree. <laughs> so, so getting into that, you know, we, we touched on a little bit about some of the, you know, the most common. Um, we, okay, we met uh, at a conference earlier this year, which was fantastic. And I really enjoyed one of the things you went through was, uh, you know, what's some of the differences, for example, when you hear, I hear a lot about SOC 1 and SOC 2. What's some of the primary differences between the two? Um, and, and is there some overlaps as well with others, uh, other compliances as well? Yeah, I uh, love this question, right? So there's there's sometimes a common misconception of what mm -hmm. SOC is and what it's not. Um, you know, SOC is not a typical prescribed framework like you'd see for, um, you know, NIST 853 or ISO 27001. Mm -hmm. It's really a reporting framework that's driven based on providing transparency to third parties around the service offerings that you have, right? So when you think about a SOC 1, it's typically used by an organization to give to their customers when they're trying to uh, provide, again, the, the depth and transparency around controls over financial mm -hmm. reporting. So it's it's auditor to auditor communication. It's communication around um, the proper controls to meet financial statement assertions so that if mm -hmm. I'm a customer using this particular cloud offering or technology uh, provider, that I know that the control objectives that have been defined uh, completeness and accuracy of transactions, access control, logical access to mm -hmm. things, change management and, and the SDLC requirements, things like that are all handled based on expectations. So I can properly evaluate my financial risk in using that. And then there's mm -hmm. controls and things that I would expect on the client side in order to do to make sure that that transaction cycle is mm -hmm. complete and accurate. So SOC 1, when you think SOC 1, think you know um, financial reporting. That's really mm -hmm. what you're gearing it on. SOC 2 is different. That's operations and compliance. And there's also a SOC 3, which is a general mm -hmm. use report on, on the same uh, criteria. But um, the SOC 2 is really a, an engine that's, devi that's devised to provide transparency around certain criteria related to security, mm -hmm. confidentiality, availability, processing integrity, or privacy. Mm -hmm. um, it's predicated on what we would call points of focus, which mm -hmm. uh, last year I was actually on the committee that, that served to, to help um, make sure that we update those points of focus. So there's a mapping to much of the third party criteria that we spoke to earlier to make sure that it's complete. But those points of focus are considerations that the auditor, the service auditor, the folks doing the SOC 2 audit mm -hmm. and management of the service organization need to evaluate to say, hey, is this something that's relevant for my service level commitment? If it is, then I need to take into consideration the proper risk and the proper controls in order to best protect against that. So what that does is it allows for a reporting framework like SOC 2 to take something like security and all those points of focus and map those to other criteria. So you could do a SOC 2, but your controls could map to the points of focus, but also mm -hmm. to ISO. They could also map to the NIST cybersecurity framework. I mean, you know, the, the list is endless just depending mm -hmm. on what those commitments are. And if the service organization has commitments on uh, that reference in this cybersecurity framework, if it mentions commitments because they're operating in the healthcare space on HIPAA, mm -hmm. then it should include the controls that are designed to do that. Um, there are additional elements there with a SOC 2 where you can do what's called a SOC 2 plus. Mm -hmm. So the auditor can opine or, or give assurance on not only the uh, criteria that's in there, the reporting criteria such as security, but they can also bring in third party criteria like the ones that we mentioned and give an opinion on the design and the operating effectiveness mm -hmm. of those controls and the accuracy of the system description that you're presenting. So 
When you think SOC 1, ICFR, Controls of Financial Reporting. When you think mm -hmm. SOC 2, operations and compliance around mm -hmm. data security, around service uh, level commitments for that. And then, of course, you have the type 1 and the type 2. A type 1 in both reports is a design-based report. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be the accuracy and completeness of the description. It's going to be the design of the controls, making sure that they're, they're meeting the overall objectives and or criteria. And then in a type two, you're getting all of that same thing, but you're getting mm -hmm. the operating effectiveness over a period of time, which is extremely important for organizations that are trying to measure the full maturity of a control to establish what their residual risk is, right? So you've mm -hmm. got to know what that operating effectiveness, effectiveness factor is. So that's why you're seeing most of the requests, if not all mm -hmm. the requests, may initially say a type one, but they all go to that type two, and they typically don't like to see gaps in coverage there. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a little bit about the, the two of them. Um, be happy to get into some trends when we talk a little bit later, but uh, Absolutely. hopefully that. Uh, so, so, no, that, that clears up a lot. I think the audience is really going to get really a good in, in overview. And for me, it's really, you know, SOC 1 is about getting the visibility <laughs> and the outcomes. And, and, and SOC 2 seems to be more about how you run your business. <laughs> so your operational side. So one is getting the visibility and, and the transparency and the reporting. So really getting to the outcomes about what you're really trying to achieve and then uh, ultimately how you're running it uh, from an operational perspective. So it's, it's fantastic to get that, that clarity, uh, which is great. What, what, are some of the, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in the industry? Are you, are you seeing a lot of things like uh, artificial intelligence and generative AI getting into you know, compliance and the regulatory side of things, uh, either to, to regulate it or actually contributing to, to audits? Uh, what are some of the trends that you're seeing in the industry? So, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, part of Part of any compliance initiative is really understanding the assets and the systems that you're dealing with. And, um, you know, what we typically find is that any type of, whether it's blockchain or mm -hmm. AI, or as organizations attempt to move towards more of a zero trust model, there's mm -hmm. going to be changes in the way in which you have to design your risks and your programs in order to fulfill what your obligations are, right? And what your overall objectives are. So, you know, we've, we've already been obviously in situations where we're talking to customers about the reporting initiatives or compliance initiatives, mm -hmm. and they're coming back and they're talking about how they're connecting with uh, generative AI models or other AI models. And, you know, what's some of the things that they need to consider in order to holistically manage that risk. And we get into obviously talking about the whole risk assessment process, understanding the nature of the system, you know, the data that it's using, mm -hmm. the training, um, you know, uh, the systems that they've designed to make sure that, you know, the, that it's fair and ethical. I mean, so on and so forth. There's just a number of, a, a number of different things that you look at there but also making sure that obviously the, the controls and the output are going to provide mm -hmm. the assurance that they need. So um, each element of technology as it evolves is a risk assessment process. And sometimes the traditional risk go away, mm -hmm. but typically overall risk just shifts, right? Because now you have other factors that you have to look at um, as, as that technology becomes more mm -hmm. uh, transparent. So, you know, years ago when people were talking about blockchain, you know, eliminating the need for certain types of audits, once again, yeah, there, there's certain risks that are going to go away because of the inherent mm -hmm. nature of blockchain. But now you have elements of the whole design process, the integrity mm -hmm. of the transactions, the, the controls of how the systems operate and how they operate within the blockchain itself. I mean, so all of those things become uh, mm -hmm. critical factors. Those are all trends. Um, I think as you start to kind of step into some of the things that we're also seeing, there's been an explosion of automation, right? Mm -hmm. Not only incident response automation, but even in the in the compliance space for, you know, GRC systems, right? Yep. So you got organizations that are putting in GRC systems that are certainly um, 
aiding in the efficiencies internally within their own uh, walls and in their in their systems, making sure that they're able to operationalize, use data, and and really become uh, streamlined in how they're operating across different types of uh, regulatory requirements. I think some of the common misconceptions is that by putting in a tool like that, you're allevi you're alleviating and or reducing the audit effort. And I think that what you'll find is that while there are efficiencies internally in how organizations operate with these tools, there's also efficiencies in how they collaborate with the auditors. But once mm -hmm. again, the auditors have standards that they have to adhere to and the risk again shifts, right? These GRC systems are really what we'd call IPE, information provided by the entity. It's collecting mm -hmm. information. It's tied in, the APIs are tied in back into cloud systems. They're gathering information from uh, whether it's JIRA tickets or something like that mm -hmm. through a SaaS provider. And from an auditor perspective, not only do we have to look at the GRC provider, if it's a SaaS solution, to make sure that that's tight, looking at their SOC reports and other types mm -hmm. of third-party risk management reports, but we also have to look at how it's configured. We have to test to make sure the system's connecting mm -hmm. to the right data sets, that it's hitting the right access control objects that we're doing the access control, re control reviews on. It's pulling the right populations in. It's grabbing the right data. So there's uh, a number of different types of tests that you would have to do when using those products, uh, in addition to looking at the data itself and making sure mm -hmm. that all your parameters are where they need to be to meet standards. So I think that's an important concept. It doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily alleviate the audit, but it certainly um, helps in efficiencies through the audit process, but auditors still have to do what they need to do. Um, that's another one that I would say, I mean, supply chain management mm -hmm. is obviously uh, something that's over the last several years has been on the radar from for many folks, just making sure that um, you know, software that you utilize and the different types of technologies that are brought in, the third-party risk management, the vendor management programs are mature, knowing that um, just because you don't house that data, you're still primarily responsible for the processing yeah. of that data. So maturing those environments, I think, is, is really key. Um, I think, you know, the regulatory challenges, staying up on that, and GRC mm -hmm. tools are a great way to do that, you know, just making sure that you're able to bring in all these different requirements to map controls that you already have, understanding these different security threats that are out there, the increased privacy regulations that are out there. I mean, we know mm -hmm. that AI, the, um, the, the EU is actually putting out something right now yep, as it pertains EU, to uh, EU, AI. Yep. Yeah, yeah, the AI regulatory requirements there. So, mm -hmm. you know, things, it's a moving target. And I think what you're going to find is that you know, organizations just have to stay, stay on top of what those contractual legal requirements are, regulatory requirements, the type of data, and then massage that in with all the changes in technology that they have and know that the auditors still have to do their best in maintaining the standards of, of due process there to make sure that they're giving viable uh, reports and output for certifications or attestations that are going to continue to feed the trust and transparency needed by um, all third parties and, and customers alike. So it sounds like for me, it sounds like, you know, when we when we talked about a uh, big, I was actually, you know, participating in a lot of the subject matter expert for the EU AI Act, and we, a big portion of that was explainability. It sounds like the same applies to GRC solutions is that you still have to get into, okay, I'm, I'm now still collecting a lot of the data to help me with the audit. However, I need to go through the explainability about how I got that data, getting into the configuration, making sure it's configured correctly, making sure you've got the right scope of what you're really looking to do. Uh, so I think, you know, what we're really looking at it is, is making sure that, yes, that you still have the audit, the solution controls itself rather than actually just the result of what it's actually gathering. So it's really important for organizations to realize that. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, you take an example, if, if an organization has designed some level of an exception report, you know, going through their, their, uh, their Jira stack or whatnot, um, or their Jira tickets, um, they may have some type of exception reporting technology mm -hmm. built in. 
And an auditor may look at that and, and see all the different exceptions that are produced 100% across that logic. But mm -hmm. if you don't know the accuracy of that logic and whether or not that's tying back to the risk and the controls, then you could inherently be looking at something that's not necessarily appropriate. So understanding how that's operating, it goes back to the, mm -hmm. you know, system integration testing, right? Yeah. From, from years, years back, that's still applicable now is just making sure you're able to identify the requirements, mm -hmm. understand the control, understand the risk, test it as it's, as it's meant to be, and then look at the output and make sure that that lines up with what those expectations are. And it clearly stays within the mm -hmm. expectations of what you're reporting. Absolutely. It always reminds me, it goes back to one of my earlier times in asset management side, where I remember a really large transportation organization was was you know uh, definitive they were like we've 120,000 licenses and and no more that's all we have we're going hey, sure let's let's do a proper audit and discovery let's do you know and they're like no look look our spreadsheet shows 120,000 machines servers and so forth and we're like no do the audit so we get in we actually did the discovery and we found 140,000 machines <laughs> so 20,000 and for, for I mean that's a that's a, a large enterprise in its own within this organization um, and what ultimately it was it was you know going through the process what we ended up finding was that their deprovisioning process was not working. People were basically getting new laptops, new devices, new desktops, new servers, but the old one was simply just be moved aside under the desk. And for old versions, maybe they needed to go and an application was no longer working in this newer, newer device. They had to go and basically run it in that old device to make, you know, do the report, do the spreadsheet, do the activity. Uh, and end up being, you know, licenses, uh, malware, you know, unprotected machines, um, the actually, when we, when we actually did the calculation, the energy saving alone paid for the deprovisioning like process to clean it up, oh, just, the, just the energy just saving, the energy saving. No, right. no, not, not even calculating unlicensed machines and, you know, the, the, the threat of those devices as well, just the energy cost uh, of running those 20,000 extra machines was so absolutely, it's, it's really important to make sure that you have that, you know, transparency and visibility into making sure that you don't have a mistake in the process. Uh, That's that. a great, a great example. I think it's so scoping is such an important part of any type of um, cyber compliance or privacy risk management compliance initiative. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could spend so much time, energy and effort solidifying a certain element. And if it's only a fraction of how you operate and a fraction of the overall footprint, because mm -hmm. you didn't identify properly, that's a huge risk. Um, mm -hmm. So auditors spend a lot of time and they should be spending a lot of time asking the right questions, mm -hmm. understanding the technology and the interoperating of the technology, both in their systems and with third parties, so that they clearly understand where it's going. So they, they understand what that risk profile looks like. So that's a great example. I appreciate you bringing that up. No problem. And that brings me to the next side of things is like, if I'm an organization, I'm going to go down this, this path. Let's say I just realize, okay, yes, we, we want to do a, a, a certification and let's say, you know, SOC or we want to do ISO, um, what, what would be the best place to get started? What resources would I need? Um, you know, it sounds to me, you know, having that, you know, really good foundation and, and scoping would probably be a, a good place to start. But if, if you're an organization, what, what would what would you recommend, you know, kind of uh, the best place and resources to kind of go down this path? Okay, yeah. So I think, um, so a couple of things, right? The first thing is obviously identifying key stakeholders in the organization that are going to be responsible for the efforts, right? And with that, you're going to be identifying the right people that have the, the, the subject matter expertise over an array of different areas that are going to be required in order to facilitate an effective program. Um, you obviously, like anything else, are going to need key stakeholder and leadership buy-in. Uh, if mm -hmm. you're not going to get that, then you're going to have a very difficult time succeeding. It's, a cost, it's definitely a costly effort. 
it's got to be weighed up against obviously the the value of the protection of the data the contractual and regulatory requirements that you have um, so getting that buy-in in that direction getting that strategy outlined as i think is paramount for a starting position then identify the experts identify the people whether they're internal external consultants anything that you know you're going to need um, or a team of folks that you're going to need in order to execute i think becomes really important um, identifying the right applicable regula uh, regulatory expectations and contractual uh, expectations. So mm -hmm. now you're getting into your procurement teams, you're getting into your legal teams, you're getting into folks to help you truly understand you know, your, your data, your uh, data privacy officers, so on and so mm -hmm. forth, to truly understand the types of data you have, the requirements you have, or more mature organizations that have a contract management system, you know, this might be a little bit easier than yep. ones that have uh, a little bit less of a mature process for that. But that's really important, understanding that so mm -hmm. you know what you're up against, what criteria you have to set. Then you're going to build out your risk assessments, um, making sure that you've established the right uh, risk assessment against um, meeting those requirements. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to be looking at obviously identifying the objectives and scope, the boundaries of the systems, what systems do we need to take into place based on, for example, PCI or HIPAA? Uh, are we using ISO in this 853 as the overall arching factors there? Um, what, are, what other types of factors do we have to bring into the scope? And then you'll, do, you'll you really establish what the framework is that you're going to use or frameworks or criteria that you're going to use in order to measure up against. So now you have kind of this risk-based approach. You're looking at the completeness with the, the frameworks that you're using. You're designing and you're evaluating and you're ongoingly setting up ongoing measures for um, monitoring those controls. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to develop the policies and procedures. This is something we typically see organizations struggle with, right? The level of uh, documentation needed in order to substantiate how they operate mm -hmm. overall as a practice, as a governance program, but also from a procedural perspective, not necessarily you know, run books in every area, mm -hmm. but enough that if you gave it to somebody with um, the knowledge to operate, they could articulate how to execute within the organization on a particular procedure. So documentation becomes really important, having the, the, the right folks to understand, articulate the processes, and then be able to transcribe that. Good technical writers is always a good part of that. Um, making sure the controls are implemented, they're monitored, they're tested. Your incident response program is, is up to date. We talked about that earlier when we talked about, you know, not coming to the game with no practice. Yes. <laughs> um, just making sure you've done those rehearsings and you've done that. Training and awareness continues to be a significant factor. Just making sure people know their responsibilities. They know how to operate. They know how to call a file when they need to. They understand the risks and the threat landscape. And they're, you know, like cybersecurity, it's, it's a holistic approach mm -hmm. to ensuring success. Um, and then have those regular audits, whether it's internal audit, periodic audits, external audits, assessments. Um, it's okay to have internal teams doing that depending on your maturity and the competencies, but it's great to have externals come in, be able to report independently to folks and, and make sure that you know there's, there's, a, there's a clear eye mm -hmm. and an overall objective look at the programs. Um, and then ultimately, you know, just making sure that you're staying on top, your risk assessments and everything. This is a continuous process. Yep. It's not set and forget. You got to make sure that you institutionalize this program to gain success over time. Otherwise it becomes stale, outdated, and you'll, you'll lack the achievement and the success that you want. Absolutely. As far as external resources, um, a lot of that really depends on, you know, what your initiatives are. I mean, there's a significant amount of resources out there, obviously. Um, ISACA, you know, AICPA mm -hmm. has a lot related to SOC. 
ISACA has a lot related to COBIT and other frameworks mm -hmm. that are out there. ISO is going to have a lot of information predicated on how to implement a, a program like that. If, you, if you're uh, up against PCI, uh, PCI has well-versed um, documentation on how to execute in certain areas of their programs. CMMC uh, has, has, is also um, coming up with its information. We didn't talk much about high trust, but that's another mm -hmm. one that's out there that's pretty prescriptive, that gives a lot of information on, on what you, you would need to do in order to fulfill any high trust obligations. High trust is, mm -hmm. it's designed to be agnostic, but it really started in the, in the healthcare industry space and, and it's probably the most popular in that space. Um, but they got a lot of information there. Uh, and of course there's other SANS. Um, I mean, there's a number yep. of industry groups out there that can help you achieve success and deal with some of the nuances of all these different types of compliance programs. Absolutely. They have a lot, a lot of great resources and also, you know, even certifications and trainings, they really help you make sure that you've got the right knowledge. I think one of the things I just, I can't emphasize more about documentation, um, you know, definitely is the ability, you know, to make sure that you get consistency and repeatable. Uh, it, it, it prevents people from making mistakes because that's where a lot of breaches and a lot of incidents come from. It's just con configuration and mistakes that we, we do uh, because we don't have the information in order to make sure we're doing it consistently with the right security approach. And I think one of the things you, a couple of you mentioned kind of really resonated with me is making sure you get the right people, uh, you know, the, the resources, the people, uh, and, and the scope of those people as well within the organization. Getting buy-in from the executive team as well. Uh, because they're really, really going to be your sponsors to make sure you're able to fulfill and complete. And then one interesting one is about, you know, the contracts as well, as you mentioned, if it, that's a really, probably really good places that, you know, to, to understand about, you know, how much effort it's going to take. If your contracts are actually, you know, uh, well, basically documented, maintained, up to date and using a proper uh, system and solution can really help you automate and speed a lot of those up. If it's manual and, and, and you know, very human process, uh, and you know, in, in, in within hidden and within documents and, and, and data, that's going to be a very difficult place to get started. So absolutely, for an organization, you know, you mentioned a bit about you know internal and external resources. One of the things I always say is, you know, should should organizations try to do this alone, um, or should they really try to make sure that they get the right help? Uh, I, my my view is always about making sure. You know, I'd rather uh, when I do things myself, if I'm not really expert in that area. What I try to do is, is get the right person who will help me do it because they'll do it a hundred times faster than me um, and much better than I will. You know, if I try to do something that I'm not an expert in or skilled in, I might have to do it four or five times repeatable in order to get it to a certain amount of, you know, quality that would be acceptable. Um, is that the same process here? Would, would you apply the same approach? Is, is it better to get outside help and resources uh, to help you go or, or as some organizations really place to do this by themselves? I think uh, I'll take a step back. I think mm -hmm. the real question is identifying the right resources on such a large scale of subject matter expert areas, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we talked about legal, we talked about um, data, data privacy and security. We talked about controls over financial reporting. I mean, there's all these different, you got HR elements, mm -hmm. you got your technology and operations team. There are so many different folks that are part of this program in one way, shape or form. So I think understanding the right expertise based on those requirements mm -hmm. is key. Now, to your point, if an organization has, um, you know, nobody or, you know, a few folks that have expertise in some areas, then they can leverage that and then maybe augment that with mm -hmm. some, uh, professionals that are in the space that are consultants uh, that provide these services, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, a careful combination, but you don't know what you don't know, right? So yep. in certain cases, 
you, you do have somebody who may think, okay, I'm pretty vast on this. I've done X, but perhaps what you need to do is just make sure that that person is comfortable with everything that, you know, again, they, they, they know what they don't, they, they know what they know, but they don't know what they don't know. So yeah. making sure that they're on the right path based on um, all of that information, I think it becomes important when you have folks that have a, a larger team that mm -hmm. specialize in the industries that you operate in, that, that specialize in the regulatory requirements that know the idiosyncrasies, they do it uh, day in and day out for mm -hmm. a magnitude of organizations and, and know how to navigate a lot of that. There's obviously benefit to that, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's not necessarily something I'd say you have to go external, but if you have those teams internal, you know, that's, that's spectacular. Utilize mm -hmm. those resources, uh, bring those teams in to do what they need to do and have them augment where they need to, where they find themselves short. But again, you always have the ability to, to find external consulting groups that operate in the space day after day and, and can typically navigate this stuff. And, you know, what you're bringing to them is probably not mm -hmm. the first time they've seen it or navigated it and have a well-executed plan in order to help you facilitate a successful uh, result as, mm -hmm. as a part of that. I think another thing, too, is when, when you do all of this, and I, I might have failed to mention it earlier, but it's incredibly important getting keyholder, getting key stakeholder and executive leadership support is paramount, but also continuously reporting back to your leadership teams is mm -hmm. really important, right? So, so they understand their investment, they understand the risk, the strategies mm -hmm. and where you're heading and, and, you know, making sure the board of directors and everybody's up to date on that becomes important. So again, making sure you even have those folks that are properly aligned and the right skill set mm -hmm. to deliver the message and not make a mountain out of a molehill, but at the same token, provide a true element of transparency mm -hmm. as to what their risk is, I think is really important as well. Absolutely. I think that's important because one of the things is that a lot of these requirements and requests come from the board in the first place sometimes because they want to ultimately reduce the risk and also increase the quality assurance for themselves. Um, and that's one of the things is that, you know, when, when they're representing, uh, they want to make sure that it's, 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 you know, both directions. So really important. And this has been fantastic. It's been for me. It's always well, speaking with you is always educational. I always learn a lot, and it's 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 fantastic. Do you have any final kind of summaries or key takeaways that we'd like to leave the the audience um, that would really kind of maybe a resource, maybe a place to go, um, or a recommendation that you would have? Well, I want to thank you once again, Joe. And I also want to say the feelings mutual. Every time I have a conversation <laughs> with you, I'm learning something new as well. So I appreciate that for sure. Um, yeah, I think overall, you know, understanding the difference between you know, your cyber compliance and cyber security needs is really important and not necessarily thinking that just because you're driving one element of cyber compliance that you're looking at cyber security holistically. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about, you know, the, the, the nature of the resources, the completeness of what you need mm -hmm. to do to facilitate an effective program, how to get those resources, making sure that the right resources, how to communicate your efforts. Um, making sure that you're mitigating and, and dealing with what you need for all of the different types of contractual and regulatory requirements out there, understanding how to mitigate the threat landscape, mm -hmm. identify the proper um, assets and the scope of the environment that you're looking at, making sure you're not leaving anything out, like in your use case of the, the <laughs> systems that were left out, um, making sure that you're designing and you're operationalizing all of the controls that you need and you're monitoring that as you mature the program, mm -hmm. you're documenting that. Um, those are all real important factors. And obviously it's, it's a journey, right? Yep. And it's going to continue to evolve. It's not set and forget, um, have a strategy, make sure you got the right team to back you up and you're, you're in a position to navigate those, those threats and those things that go wrong or go sideways or things that happen that are not within your control, but affect you. 
Um, and I think I'm going to tie this all back to your opening statement. Have fun. This is fun stuff, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That's one of the things is that, you know, it, it is, it is, when I attended the conference, I, I met so many awesome people that was from the auditing side of things that I'd never thought about, you know, never seen that. It was, it was such exciting and really to see, you know, how people view the compliance and auditing side of things. And it was, for me, it was very educational and very eye-opening. Um, but absolutely, we, we had to make sure that this is fun and, and enjoy it as much as possible because ultimately that's <laughs> that's what makes the big difference for sure. Absolutely. So it's been fantastic having you on. I've really enjoyed the session today and definitely for the audience, I think this is really going to give them a really good uh, amount of resources and knowledge to really help them uh, you know, approach compliance and, and, and security with a much more broader perspective and, and make sure they understand it with, you know, uh, taking it from a much more readiness and, and also think about, you know, that this is a journey. It's not something you do once you've done. Um, you have to do it continuously and, and the risks change and the risks evolve and we have to keep, uh, you know, evolving and, and also making sure we simulate and practice um, because ultimately that's what makes the difference. So Steve, fantastic having you on. Really appreciate it. Uh, for the audience, if they have any questions, is it okay for them to reach out to you on social media or any Absolutely. ways? Okay, Absolutely. Fantastic. And fantastic. I'm sure you'll, you'll have uh, contact information that they can. We will do. We'll make sure it's available in the show notes. Um, again, thank you very much for the audience. You know, tune in every two weeks for the 401 Access Tonight podcast. We're always trying to bring information that really helps you, uh, you know, make your journey a successful one and make sure that, you know, you're able to, you know, make the world a safer place. So uh, thanks, Steve, for, for joining me today. Uh, for the audience, uh, I'll see you on a future episode. Take care and all the best. Thanks again, Joe. This podcast is brought to you by Delinea, the number one privileged access management solution for enterprises with complex hybrid IT environments. You can get our free ebook, Privileged Access Management for Dummies, by visiting us at delinea.com slash PAM for Dummies. That's delinea.com forward slash PAM, the number four, dummies. From all of us at Delinea, thanks for listening.